Let's begin. We begin. I just want to add my appreciation for everyone who contributed yesterday to make the Park Day a reality, and particularly uh, my appreciation for Elliot. Where's Elliot? Elliot. Thank you. I thank the Lord for you, brother, for you just jumping in there and planning all that. Um, so, yeah, thank you for doing that. Elliot, as you guys know from the emails, did the majority of thinking through what food was needed, made sure we had plenty of food. We did have plenty of food, so good job. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably true. We always know this. <laughs> all right. Well, as we come... We're coming to the close of our excursus on Thanksgiving. Um, really, we'll finish it next week. And so we're just kind of coming into this stage of these last three weeks where I'm wanting to think very practically. I hate to use that word just because, like, everything we've been learning from the scriptures about Thanksgiving has been practical in some sense. But how do we... Take what we've learned about the biblical perspective on Thanksgiving and put that into practice in such a way that we can see a tangible change. We become more thankful people. And so we're going to be thinking through that. We did that last week, this week, and then finally next week. We'll continue with that. So last week, we just began considering what does this look like day to day to grow in thankfulness? How do we take steps to grow in this area? And a typical approach, I'm just speaking largely probably autobiographically here, but I think you can probably sympathize. A typical approach to wanting to change when you've kind of heard from the scriptures the need to change often just looks like sort of a a good intention in the moment to do better, right? I've heard the word, okay, I need to grow in that way. In this particular case, like I want to grow in thankfulness. So yeah, I'm just going to try to grow in thankfulness. During my prayer times, I'm going to try to remember to be more thankful, spend a little more time thanking the Lord, try to be a little more attentive to just the circumstances of life and thanking the Lord for the good things he brings our way. Sometimes we might go a little bit further and we might you know, write down some verses about Thanksgiving and put them in prominent places to remind ourselves, a wonderful thing to do. We might even work to put those things to memory, another wonderful thing to do. Um, we might even pull out our, our prayer list that we use each day, and at the very top, you know, write something like, give thanks, exclamation point, highlight it. That'd be a really wonderful thing to do. So by me listing these things off, you probably anticipate I'm going to say something else. I'm not denigrating those at all. Like, those are wonderful things to do. And next week, I want to talk more about what are just those, like, super practical steps we can take. And those are all really good things to do. But we started out last week, and we're going to continue this week, thinking about something that I think is a little bit more foundational to transformation. And that is beginning with our thoughts. Beginning with what we believe. And so generally, I'm putting this all under that biblical category of mind renewal. Transformation in the Christian life happens through mind renewal. We're all familiar with that popular verse in Romans 12, Romans 12, 2. You guys remember that verse? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. So notice, we're talking about the topic of transformation in the Christian life. Be transformed by what comes next? By the renewal of your mind. So how does transformation happen according to that verse? By the renewal of our minds, right? (laughs) But what does mind renewal mean? 
How do we renew our minds? What about our minds needs renewal? What we do is driven by what we think or what we believe. We do what we do because of what we believe. We feel what we feel even because of what we believe. I'm pausing there because I think often when we think about our feelings, we feel like we're victims of our feelings, right? They kind of come upon us. There's nothing I could do. The best I can do is manage my actions while I feel this way. But I would suggest actually that how we feel is dictated by what we've been thinking prior to that. And so what we think, what we believe, I'm using those terms interchangeably, are driving what we do and what we feel. For example, I'm going to give a little bit of an extended example here. I might profess to believe that I'm a guilty sinner before God who deserves nothing from him. Right? That's what I might profess to believe. I have no rights, no entitlements. The only thing I deserve is hell. But I prove that's not actually what I believe in a, very, a variety of ways. But for one example, when I get angry, when I get angry because something is turning out differently than I expected it to. Maybe I thought if I leave work at this time, I should be able to get home in five minutes. But it actually turns into 15 minutes. And I get angry. Why? Because I expected something and my expectations have not been met. Regardless of what I might profess to believe in that moment, I'm believing that I had a right to that, to have my expectation met. If I did it, I wouldn't be getting angry. So I want you guys to see just practically the disconnect that's often there between what we profess to believe is true and what we functionally do believe in the moment. Here's another example. Still professing to believe all those things, right? I have no rights, no entitlements. All I deserve is hell. But then I get depressed. I become downcast. It could be for a variety of reasons, but let's imagine because I realize I've let someone down in a particular area. Or maybe something I put so much work into didn't end up being useful. Regardless of what I might profess to believe in that moment, it's being exposed that I had certain expectations about usefulness or fruitfulness, how productive or helpful I might be. And as I'm realizing that my expectations for life have not been met, I'm beginning to get discouraged, right? Is anything worth doing? Why do I put all this in? Why would I even put more work in, right? Are not those the basic surface level symptoms of, of some level of depression? I begin to wonder, why continue and keep putting in more effort? But the whole reason I'm wondering that is because I had expectations. If, if getting up today and doing this task is worth it, then my expectations need to be met. I ought to see this level of fruitfulness. But if I actually believe what I said at the beginning then I would say, Lord, any way that I might serve you, regardless of whether I think it's worthwhile or not, is appropriate because I have no rights. So I'm content to keep getting up and keep working regardless of if my expectations are being met or not. Are you guys seeing the disconnect there? What we profess to believe in practically or functionally what we're really believing? We've got to see that because we have to get to that functional belief and figure out why, what are we believing and how do we correct that? What's the truth we need to put in its place? That's the process of mind renewal. To say it from another angle, we sin, whether in actions or in feelings, when we are thinking and believing lies. When we are actually functionally believing truth, 
we won't sin. We just go back to the garden, right? The serpent begins with Eve by telling her a lie. It's only when she believes a lie that she's actually tempted to do what the Lord said was bad for her. She had to believe it was actually good for her, right? For it to be enticing. We sin when we are believing propositions that are contrary to the truth. We don't sin while we're believing the truth. Therefore, the mind renewal that is required for transformation is that of replacing unbiblical thinking with biblical or true ways of thinking. So with regard to thanksgiving, we're specifically considering what are the truths that, when believed, encourage thanksgiving to God. Because when we need to grow in thanksgiving, we need to meditate upon those truths. We need to make sure we're believing those things. And then the other side of the coin is, what are the lies that, when believed, pull us away from thanksgiving? So we said, first of all, I'm getting way behind here, sorry. All right, first truth we looked at last week was every good thing comes from God. This is the first truth that, when believed, will issue forth an abundance of thanksgiving from us. And this really is ground zero for growing in thanksgiving. We must meditate upon this. And as this becomes not just a profession, because I think we would all profess to believe this, but when this becomes a functional moment-by-moment belief, thanksgiving will issue forth. To say this another way, God is the source of every good thing we enjoy. Therefore, we should thank him for every good thing we enjoy. As I mentioned last week, I think all of us would affirm this at the level of a profession, and yet our own self-incrimination that we don't thank the Lord as we ought to just reveals that we don't functionally believe this as much as we would like to think we do. And as with some of the examples I gave a few minutes ago, we profess to believe this, but we're actually operating by a contrary proposition. And last week, we began considering what some of those things we're actually believing in the moment are. What are those threats to actually functionally believing this? The first one, and the one we spent all our time last week looking at, is this one. It just happened. That might sound silly at first, but as we unpacked it, I think it makes sense. We do often think this. Whatever good thing came to us, well, it just happened. What I mean by that is we're attributing responsibility to impersonal causes, to some sort of natural processes. I gave the example last week of saying, it's wonderful that it's raining, we needed it. Well, that's a grateful comment, isn't it? But I'm not really directing the gratitude toward anyone. And it's fitting if it just happened. If this is a a closed universe run by natural processes, natural laws, and that's all there is to attribute it to, right? Then that's all we can really expect. In that moment, I'm observing one of God's good gifts, but failing to thank him for it because I'm functionally believing that it just happened. Rather than this good thing came from the hand of God. Mediated through means, yes, but nonetheless came from the hand of God. And regardless of what I might profess to believe in that moment, my functional theology is that this good thing is attributable to inanimate processes. So why would I think something in particular, like the inanimate processes, because they weren't intentional anyways. They don't really deserve thanks. And we may, I suggested, be more prone to this than any generation in history 
simply because likely, more than any generation in history, we understand all of those natural processes the Lord uses to carry out his providential care of the universe. In other words, here's what I mean by that. The psalmist in Psalm 104 can say, God makes the grass grow. Amen. But we can actually explain photosynthesis, right? At least theoretically. You've learned it, right? You may not be able to remember it right now and <laughs> retell it to us, but yes, you understand it. You've learned it. And the reason that's a bit of a threat if we aren't careful Nothing inherently wrong with it, but as we can begin to think that's the, the most profound explanation for why grass grows, photosynthesis. The most profound explanation for why it rained is the hydrological cycle. And that in some sense to then say, oh yes, but God caused that, sounds like something you just tell to little children. You see what I'm saying? In a, in a modern world, that's almost how we tend to think, and yet... Far and away, the most profound thing we can say about how the grass grows is that God makes the grass grow. Whatever means he might use is interesting, but if you leave out the fact that God's behind it all, we've got a pretty simplistic explanation, regardless of how much we can explain all the molecular level processes. So that's one thing we've got to be cautious about. So the first way we might deny the truth that every good thing comes from God is by thinking it just happened, attributing responsibility to impersonal causes such as natural processes. And my appeal to us last week was to be attentive to God's involvement in every aspect of life and not to settle in our own minds for merely naturalistic explanations, but to discipline ourselves to trace every good, get, every good gift back to its ultimate cause, the Lord himself. And we need to renew our minds in this area by actively reminding ourselves of God's providential involvement in providing us every good thing. And then we need to be more ready, we need to more readily reach for God's working as the explanation for every good thing rather than viewing that as a pious afterthought. So now let's continue by considering some other subtle ways we practically deny that every good thing comes from God. A second one, others are responsible. So attributing responsibility to others. We do this when we receive some good thing from God, mediated, though, through some other person, and we thank that person, but never go the extra step of thanking God for that good thing. Now, to be sure, other people are often a part of God's ordained means for him to give a blessing to us. Other people are often a part of that means. And therefore, they're, they're willingly playing a part in that. They deserve to be thanked for that. That's appropriate to thank people for that. But we must not stop there. As with the natural processes we discussed first, we must not forget that God stands behind the actions of others such that he is ultimately the one to be thanked for the good that may be mediated through others to us. And the danger, as with the previous threat, is that we notice, stick with me here, immediate causes, by immediate causes, I mean all the ones in between, right? Between the ultimate cause and the effect. That the ones that are in between 
We notice all of those. We give thanks for those, but we never notice the ultimate cause, which is God's purpose to do good to us through someone else. And the solution is simply that we must continue to remind ourselves that God is the ultimate cause. We see the Apostle Paul doing this when he says things to people like, we see in his letters, I thank God, and then points out something about them, right? He's thanking them, but he's actually going beyond it, right? And thanking the Lord, but doing it kind of in their hearing, saying it to them so that they know that he's thankful. It's an interesting way of doing it, but it ensures that he always, he always gets there, right? He's always getting back to the Lord being the one who ultimately directed that. I think it's an interesting way of saying it. I'm always hesitant like to prescribe a way of saying something, right? You know, it gets to be very easy to just have that perfunctory at the end of a, a plan, if the Lord wills, and it just becomes perfunctory, right? At a certain point, we aren't even like thinking about not wanting to hold our own plans too tightly. It's just something we tack on to the end. But if we really mean it, that's a helpful thing to regularly remind ourselves of, right? And so similarly here, that could be a helpful way to think about things by just regularly articulating thanks to people in that way. So a second way we might functionally deny the truth that every good thing comes from God is by believing others are responsible. And I might say, you know, finally responsible as though there's no responsibility going beyond that. All right, so that's a second one. Others are responsible. A third way we might deny the truth that every good thing comes from God is thinking I'm responsible, attributing responsibility to ourselves. The idea here, though unstated, is that I earned this, therefore why would I thank someone else? The truth with which we must fight this is that even though God used our labor, skills, whatever else he might have used, he is still the one ultimately responsible. Why? Because he's the one who gave us the, the opportunity to do whatever we did. He is the one who gave us the energy or the skill to be able to do those things. He gave us the functioning body, the functioning mind, everything needed to do our part in causing that good outcome. He lined up innumerable factors that we could never even imagine would have to be there so that that would be the outcome. An important biblical text to counter this lie is 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul writes, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you had not received it? Operative here is that word receive, that you received it. That's a passive action, right? If you have some skill, if you have some possession, you received it. God gave it to you. So why would you boast as though you were the cause of it? Now, much as we discussed in some prior week that prayerlessness is often traceable back to pride in the form of self-sufficiency, right? If I'm prayerless, I'm thinking I can do this on my own. If I was keenly aware of my dependence, my inadequacy, my insufficiency, I would be much about prayer. But when I'm prayerless, I'm functionally thinking myself to be self-sufficient. So much as that's true when it comes to petitioning God for help, so too it is with a lack of gratitude. In fact, just as thanking God leads into petitioning him for our needs, 
Remember we talked about that? When we're thanking the Lord for things, we're remembering that he's the one who brought this about. Well, if I'm remembering that, if I'm meditating upon that truth as I'm forced to, as I'm thanking the Lord for something, the, the natural step is, well, if he met those previous needs, then what about my present needs? All right? It leads right into petition. Thanksgiving to God leads naturally right into petition. So just as that's true, likewise, petitioning him for our needs keeps us mindful of our dependence on him. Right? As we pray, it's kind of like a circle. Because I know my dependence, I pray to the Lord. As I pray to the Lord, I'm reminding myself by my actions that I'm dependent upon him, right? If you take time away from doing to pray that God would help you to do, then you're clearly not thinking you're self-sufficient. So, just like that's all happening, when God provides what we ask for in a petition, we're all the more likely to think of thanking him, right? Right? If you do something without praying to the Lord and some good, good comes out of it, maybe you'll remember to thank him for it. But if you've been praying for that thing and then some good comes out of it, you're much more likely to come back to him and thank him, right? You're probably looking at me like, well, theoretically, I'm with you. <laughs> we often don't, right? We pray to the Lord for things, some good comes out of it, and we are appreciative but don't actually voice that to the Lord. So, the underlying need, though, in all of this is humility. Humility is what's driving prayers, our petitions, and our thanksgiving. An awareness of and an embrace of our dependence on God. We are not self-sufficient. We are dependent on him. We desperately need him. And when we believe this, we will be prayerful and thankful people. And the pride that undergirds the lie of self-sufficiency threatens thanksgiving, right? If I'm proud, if I'm thinking I'm self-sufficient, I'm probably not going to be inclined to give thanks to the Lord for the good things. I'm going to be inclined to think this very thing here. I'm responsible. But that very pride and self-sufficiency is also attacked by prayer and thanksgiving because as you do both, you're reinforcing the truth that you are dependent on God. By your very actions, you're rejecting the lie of self-sufficiency, right? You're, you're basically embodying, you're living out your dependence. So, to summarize this third way we can deny this truth, a third way we might functionally deny the truth that every good thing comes from God is by believing I'm responsible, that it's attributable only to me. And now for a fourth one, and this will be the last one under this truth, and then we'll move on to the second truth. The fourth one, the fourth way we might functionally deny the truth that every good thing comes from God and therefore fail to give him thanks is by believing I deserve better than this. I think I've been saying the fourth way. I should say a fourth way. I'm sure there are probably others you could, you could think of, help me think of. But um, these are four that I think at least stood out to me to be quite prominent in my own heart. I deserve this. Now, this one's closely related to the last one, I'm responsible in fact, we might restate number three as um, I deserve this. Sorry, number three would be, um, I guess actually I typed the wrong thing there. What I meant to type there is I deserve better than this. So correct the PowerPoint there. It says I deserve this, but what I meant to write is I deserve better than this. In some ways, number three is I deserve this, right? I'm responsible. Like I did something, 
This is the outcome. It's all expected. But this fourth one is, I deserve better than this. Thinking we're entitled to something more. So this one's different than number three, because whereas the last one, number three, said the situation is as it ought to be, you know, we deem it to be a good thing. We just fail to recognize God's hand in it. Whereas that's the case with number three. With number four, we deem the situation to be less than it ought to be. Now, the result's the same. We don't thank the Lord, but for a different reason. With the, I deserve better than this lie, there's something to be thankful for. But we might say, I'm sorry, with the, uh, I'm responsible lie, number three, there's something to be thankful for. But we might say, I'm the only one to be thanked. But there's still something to be thanked, something to be thankful for. But with this lie, the fourth one, I deserve better, we don't think there's anything worth being grateful for. In this situation, we're not recognizing that what we have is, in fact, a good thing. We think it's actually a bad thing because we think we deserve better. It doesn't even occur to us to give thanks for these types of things. In our minds, the best we can hope to do is to not complain about it. You probably think of many examples, and it's always helpful. It's easy to think of examples of other people doing something that's like very blatant, right? And we, which more often need the mirror that helps to expose us, right? Like what's what's a really obvious example? Like the the teenager who goes on a missions trip and is talking to the really poor African and complaining about how their iPad's three years out of date, you know? And like that's a typical example, right? An extreme example. Like people have bigger problems than this sometimes. First world problems, right? So we call that first world problems. Um, but there's all kinds of ways we do this too. We don't even think to give thanks for something. We just simply complain about it, not realizing that what we're actually complaining about is rather a cause for giving thanks rather than a cause for complaining. It's only our high estimation of ourselves that makes us think we deserve better. In our minds, in these situations, we think the best we can hope for is to not complain about it. The problem is that we've forgotten that we deserve nothing except God's wrath. Go ahead, Sean. So how does this fit in with all the... Uh, the, 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 the yeah. All the, you know, the, Tease that question out for me a bit more. Well, they, they lament the situation that they're in. Yeah. Um, and they're... Uh, I mean, it's gone 88. Yep. There's no hope in that one. It's all dark all the way to the end, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So are you saying from those psalms, it seems as though we could potentially infer that we do have a certain measure of a right to something and to be able to offer a complaint if it's not met? Well, they do complain. I mean, they do complain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that might be a good, you know, a good thing to add in to balance that. Okay. To remember. It's normal, it's normal to you know, come to a bad situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably a good, a good thing to add in that I might not be emphasizing. I'm too strong on the other side that it is still good. Like we deserve hell, right? So do we just never ask for the Lord to forgive us of our sins? <laughs> no, like we don't deserve that, but we still ask for it, right? Um, so yeah, that's a good reminder. This isn't to say we don't ever ask for those things. Or lament over, the, over, the, or lament over something like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a good good balance to bring into there. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I think there's a fa- there's an aspect of that too. Yeah. I'm more so, maybe I'm being a bit imbalanced just on focusing on the times where we, we ought to be thankful for something and we're instead just grumbling about it. But there is also a dynamic of, hey, when we have needs, we should ask the Lord for them. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, I think there is, correct me if I'm wrong, there is a sense of, a sense in which even in our, our worst, most sorrowful times, there there are legitimately reasons to be thankful. To, to have a blend of that, that sorrow is there. Yeah, yeah. But also to have thankfulness and rejoicing in the fact that we have a greater hope. Yeah, 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 that's good. So that's helpful. That's helpful corrective. Because what I'm saying might suggest that if we ever ask God for anything or lament the fallen world as it is with all of its problems that we're expressing ingratitude. That might suggest that. I can see that. And rather, while we need to be cautious about that and thank the Lord for the things that are good, and as we'll see in a moment, even the things that aren't always so good, there is a place for petitioning him to, to change the situation. Indeed. You never see him. I mean, when he does bring up the in first, in first Corinthians or he brings up all the things that have happened. To yeah. Him. He doesn't really complain about it. In fact, he doesn't really want to talk about it. It seems like he's forced to do that. Yeah. But his, his overall, like you've been pointing out, his, it seems like his overall scheme uh, or, or outlook on life is thankfulness. And that's pretty prominent in his yeah. epistles. So, I mean, Maybe that's the way it goes. I mean, yeah, bad things happen to us, and we don't answer. But in the end, uh, like Paul, I mean, none of us, you know, okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, and yet he is very thankful. For all yeah, that. totally, totally. And there's, yeah, I'll just be, yeah, I think I'm probably being imbalanced in that just because focusing on one side, right? Yeah. Our need to grow in gratitude. Paul, Paul seems to focus on He does, he does, yeah. Yep. That's helpful. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So let's work this out in a plausible scenario, okay? Plausible scenario. You're at home. You're tempted to think I deserve better than this and not to give thanks to the Lord. Here's the scenario. Finances are tight. And for dinner, you're eating rice and beans with a slice of bread to try to stick within your budget, make sure the money stretches far enough. For those of you here in school, this seems very plausible. In this moment, you need to remember that not only should you not complain about that, but you should thank God for it, for that's far better than you deserve. But Sean's reminding me, it is still appropriate probably to say, hey, Lord, we would prefer something a little bit more nutritious, some more protein than just, uh, than just the beans. <laughs> how about, hey, how about uh, tuna? Tuna and crab? Hey, maybe a little bit. <laughs> that's another good option, Yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's gourmet meal. meal, Yeah, and this could basically involve almost any area of our life, right? Complaining about the car we drive, when hey, at least we have a car, right? Um, And you can go on down the list: our job, 
our home. And in each of these areas, we must learn to see everything we have as an undeserved gift from the Lord. Listen to this quotation from Isaac Watts. We are as vile and unworthy as others, and our God beholds all our unworthiness, all our guilt, our repeated provocations, and his past mercies abused, and yet he continues to have mercy upon us and waits to be gracious. Waits there not in the sense of withholds being gracious, but is eagerly ready to dispense grace at the next opportunity. Yeah, that, that accurately captures our situation, doesn't it? How gracious he is, despite the fact we deserve none of that. And that's the perspective we must cultivate. So this fourth way we might functionally deny the truth that every good thing comes from God is by believing I deserve better than this, thinking we're entitled to something more. So the first truth we've been looking at, looked at last week and are finishing up now, is that every good thing comes from God. This is a truth that when believed will encourage thanksgiving. And the four ways we might functionally deny this truth are, it just happened, others are responsible, I'm responsible, and I deserve better than this. Now let's consider a second truth that when believed will encourage thanksgiving. Everything that we don't deem good or naturally give thanks for also comes ultimately from God operating in all his goodness. I know it's a long one. I thought about breaking it up, but I think it's helpful to keep all these elements together. Everything that we don't deem good or naturally give thanks for also comes ultimately from God operating in all his goodness. So this truth advances beyond the first one in that whereas the first truth began with the good things we enjoy, and then said we got to recognize those things come from God, now we're going to everything else, basically. Everything that doesn't fit into the good things. And we're having to ask, where do those things come from, and what's motivating them? This one looks at things like the trials. We might even say every bad thing. I'll come back in a moment to why I worded it in this way. But we might even say every bad thing, every hard thing, ultimately comes from God operating in all his goodness. So if every hard thing comes to us from God, ultimately, as he operates in all his goodness, then we have very good reason to thank him for every hard thing. Now, before I move on to unpack this, I want you to note that between these two truths, we left no circumstances, right? There's no circumstance untouched. There's the good things we enjoy, and there's everything else. The first truth addresses the good things. The second truth is the much harder one, isn't it? It addresses everything else. And before I... Let me say this here. For the believer, everything without exception comes to us from God as he intentionally, proactively does good to us. Therefore, we ought to thank him for it. This is why Paul can state in Ephesians 5.20 that one of the results of being filled by the Spirit is that we give thanks to God. Remember what he says here? We give thanks to God always and for everything. 
That's a stunningly expansive statement. We give thanks to God always and for everything. And that's a hard verse when everything includes all of the hard things in life. But it's entirely understandable and even appropriate in good when we believe this truth. And this reality that the believer thanks God for hard things is one that is one of the ways, I'll say, it's one of the ways that the gratitude of a believer is exceedingly profound in a way that worldly gratitude can never comprehend. We've talked at multiple points about the, the popularity of gratitude in our own time, but in many ways a godless gratitude, a gratitude that doesn't focus on God as the giver. And the fact, the, the idea of being able to give God thanks for hard things is one that worldly gratitude has no category for, right? It's one of the ways that will mark distinguish the gratitude of a believer from the gratitude of an unbeliever. Now I've said here, everything we don't deem good. So let me just kind of explain why I've said it this way for a moment. A little parenthesis here. Everything we don't deem good. And I'm doing that to keep the complexity in view. The situation's never as simple as it seems to us. For example, if God does have a good purpose behind something, can it be considered entirely bad? Consider a text that we'll come back to shortly, Genesis 50-20. Many of you probably remember Genesis 50-20. Joseph, talking to his brothers who have sold him into slavery, when he now comes face-to-face with them at the end of the story, and actually comes face-to-face with them before, but this is the point at which he actually discloses who he is. He says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So, and here's the caveat. It would be a mistake to conclude that since God has a good purpose in it, we can't or shouldn't still acknowledge it to be something that is in itself bad. See the tension here? On the one hand, we almost don't want to call it necessarily a bad thing because, well, God is doing this in his goodness. He has a good purpose behind it. And yet there's a sense in which it's these hard things that we're referring to are things that would never have happened in the garden before the fall. And they're things that won't be happening on the new earth. There's a sense in which God himself and his redemptive purposes has deemed them bad, right? So I don't want to, I don't want to back away from that. So even though I'm saying everything we don't deem good, I don't mean by that to suggest that they really are good and that it would be wrong to call them bad but also to suggest that whenever we call them a bad thing, we need to remember this truth, right? God ultimately is the one behind it operating in all his goodness, which seems to in some sense mitigate that that adjective that is bad. So that's just kind of the tension we got to hold when we think through this. Now with that caveat aside, let's just unpack this truth and particularly two elements involved here. And this is a... This whole truth is a very hard truth. And yet, don't think that just because something is complex 
or debated, that it therefore is irrelevant. Don't get me wrong, there are many things that people might debate theologically that are irrelevant. But there are also things like this truth, which is vitally important, even if it is a hard truth. And so we do well to put some time into thinking about it. And unfortunately, I just don't, I don't, you know, it's like in the middle of an excursus on Thanksgiving, but it's a critical truth. So I'm going to move very quickly through these things, um, but at least really briefly kind of lay this down and try to apply it. So, first of all, these kind of two elements of this truth. One is that God is, we could say, specifically sovereign, or we could say he's exhaustively sovereign. We could even say he's meticulously sovereign. What do I mean by that? I mean what some people have said, there's, there's not a single rogue molecule in the universe. The illustration Jonathan Edwards used, which I thought was helpful, is you know, you're sitting at your breakfast table and the sun's shining through the window and you see the dust. You know, sometimes you get those like the sun comes through a window in a way you suddenly realize, wow, there's a ton of dust in here. And you see every single one of those dust particles dancing in the air. Meticulous sovereignty means that God is the one who's ordered every single dust particle at that point in time to be moving in that pattern. Hence the adjective exhaustive or meticulous. Specific even seems a bit too trite for that level of sovereignty, right? But that's what I mean by that as opposed to just some general sense of God being a sovereign king reigning over all. So God is this meticulously sovereign and he is so over everything and here's the hard truth i think that piece is very easy for us to accept right the hard piece is when you start asking well, what does everything include right does everything really mean everything does everything include the hard things does everything include evil but that's what the scriptures teach and we could turn to a number of passages we could turn to passages like isaiah 10 where God says that he is the one who is taking Assyria and moving them against Israel to punish them. So here's God causing this army to come and do this, to bring destruction on his people as a a rod of discipline in his hand. And he even says, this is what's so interesting about that chapter in Isaiah 10. He even says that when the king of Assyria is done, he will punish him for his wickedness. Why? Because the king of Assyria does this with his own intentions and evil intentions against the Lord. And the Lord's going to punish him for that, even though in the midst of that, he's acting to carry out the Lord's purposes. There is a profound mystery in this. And yet that's what the Lord says, right? The Lord himself is not responsible for the evil committed by the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria is himself responsible to be punished for that evil. And yet in some sense, paradoxical though it may be, God is ordering all of that. So there are all these passages, right? You can look at that passage and say, okay, well, there's one one incident in the latter half of the 8th century BC. Okay, how do you move from that to say everything? And we could go through a ton of texts where specific events are said to be this way. But I think one passage, and I'm not sure if I have it up here. I do. 
that is helpful because it basically just goes ahead and says the comprehensive nature of this is Ephesians 1.11. Paul writes, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose. And then he used this relative clause to refer to God. The God who predestined us according to his purpose. This God is a God who works all things after the counsel of his will. So all things that are something he's worked as he deems best, according to the counsel of his will. I know that a topic like this just begs a lot more explanation, but since this is simply kind of trying to real briefly lay this foundation for the sake of applying it in a way that's needed, we need this truth if we're to thank God for everything. And so that's why I'm going to have to move quickly past that. But that's the first element, right? God is specifically, meticulously, exhaustively sovereign over everything, including evil. And then a second element to this is that God has purposed for good even the bad things that he sends into the lives of his children. Notice that. So the first one says he's sovereign over all of it. The second one says he's not just sovereign over it, he has a good purpose in it. He has a good purpose in all of it, even the hard things. That's why I say here, the last part comes from God operating in all of his goodness. And when I say in all of his goodness, I don't simply say that to say he is not guilty of any of the evil that he's ordained. I mean, when it comes to his children, he does it out of his goodness in the sense of his beneficence, his benevolence, his loving care. So just a few quick passages here, a very popular one that you are probably familiar with, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Or one I mentioned just a moment ago, Genesis 50, 20. Joseph speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And by these passages, the authors aren't simply saying that God is taking a bad situation and wringing some good out of it. That's not what the author's saying. He's saying that God, from the very beginning, purposed something. So, like, think about this passage. He's not saying that God's responding, oh, Joseph was sold into slavery. What could I make good out of this now? Let me, let me try to create something good out of it. No, he's saying that the Lord had a purpose even before he was sold into slavery, for him to keep alive the covenant people of God, the heirs of Abraham, through a famine, by having Joseph strategically positioned in Egypt to save up grain to preserve them through this time. So even before God purposed even the slavery, will those Ishmaelites be punished for their slave training? Yes, Did God still purpose that for good for his people? Yes. Realize we're running out of time, but that's fine. We have next week. (laughs) Because next I want to get to the, the threats, the lies, the ways we deny this. So let me just end there. I'll just end by saying, I know these are, this second truth is a difficult one. And in some sense, 
it's like as I was thinking through, wow, how do we apply this? What does this practically look like? It almost seems unhelpful to try to, in a short span of time, unpack and apply what is a hard truth, and yet it seems unhelpfully superficial to simply stop at truth number one. Every good thing comes from God. So now you should give thanks for every good thing. Well, what about the rest of life? And what about the commands to give thanks in every situation, right? We're just left totally without the theological underpinnings necessary to do that. And in some ways, this truth, however hard it may seem, is just essential to stability, to the mature stability in the Christian life. And a a believer who believes this, lays hold of this, and lives according to this, will evidence a maturity that comes out, one of the ways it comes out is their willingness to, their ability, their persistence even, in giving thanks to God in all circumstances. Because they're actually believing this. They're actually clinging to this. So I think it was essential to jump into. And furthermore, I think that this is a truth that even though I'm kind of wading into and explaining it, is not new to 9 out of 10 of you. And this is a a familiar and much-loved truth because we need it, right? We live in a fallen world. And so uh, mostly we're just applying it, but I don't want to jump straight to application when there's a bit of explanation needed. All right. Any thoughts to add on? Jed? You've always got some thought. Becky. Becky's got a thought, Jed. <laughs> oh, that, that's what happened. You were right. <laughs> Yeah. So you're saying the king of the Assyrians, he was intentional about going to attack them. Yeah. God's not, but then you also say God's not allowing that to happen, he's planning that to happen. Mm-hmm. So can we use the word allow in that like how does that Yeah. So I think there can be two intentions behind using the allow language. One, which I'd be quicker to distance myself from, I think scripture wouldn't wouldn't endorse. Is, is actually saying, like, God is passive in these moments. This is something where he actually goes hands off and says, I'm going to kind of allow a, a sovereignty vacuum here for humans to do what they want. I appreciate the, the desire there. I think the desire is to make sure that God is in no way associated with evil, right? Scripture would insist upon that. Like, we, whatever, however you work out these angles, like, we can't, like, Scripture says God's good, right? He, he is not responsible for evil. But so many texts suggest that he actually is more involved in ordaining those things. So the other reason I think people might say it is they're still saying there's not a sovereignty back, and they aren't saying that. They're saying he's still involved, but wanting to avoid the idea that he is directly, as we might say, the primary cause involved. Um, I think what scripture would suggest is that there's, he's working through immediate causes who, who are the ones bearing the responsibility. Does it make sense? And so if you say he caused it, sounds like he's like on the front lines, the one directly doing it. Um, and so permission seems, if, if that's what permissions, the language is doing, 
is just making sure we know God's not morally responsible for it, then I think that's appropriate. But I do think it introduces a confusion that leads me to avoid that language. Yeah. Jed. First, thank you for tackling so many hard truths mm-hmm. and helping us see our way through that. Yeah. I really do thank you for that. And on that point, one of the ways or one of the summary statements I think helped me kind of package this truth or help to deal with this truth came from Mike Horton when he said that uh, there's a problem. Right? He said, I think there's a problem with trying to solve the problem of evil mm. philosophically yeah, yeah. instead of seeing that God has solved it historically. And where do we see hmm. the height of all of his goodness? In the cross. most unjust thing that we can yeah, find, totally. which is the cross. Yeah. And trying to package how we operate everything else instead yep. of good things and seeing that historical uh, problem of evil solved on the cross. Amen. Yeah. It was really, really helpful in saying, okay, how do we try to put Hardware on this yeah. particular truth. So thank you for leading us through. Totally, totally. Yes, Joby. I just want to echo what Jed said. That a lot of my Christian life, I've kind of lived on the truth number one, mm-hmm. which sometimes feels a little trite. But yeah, every good thing comes from God. But moving into the second truth and kind of exercising what Jed said is how do you look at the process of good things? God calls it a good thing. Mm-hmm. I don't have the correct definition of what good is. Yeah. And so, truth yeah. number two, battling that, that preconception of, no, I know what is good for me in my self sufficiency and pride. Right? Yeah. Fleshing that out, the, the most unjust thing we could possibly think of in human terms is the greatest goodness for, for me and my soul. Totally. Yep. Go ahead. People go to Genesis 20 a lot, and I appreciate it. When I go to Father Catholic, I came across this passage the other day, and the clarity blew me away. Hmm. And with a good purpose. Yes. Yeah. Others were guilty for sure. They were the means that God used, but God sent them to eat it. Yeah. Yeah, there's helpful clarity there. All right, let me close this in prayer. Lord, we do thank you that your word is is a revelation that comes to us as a rebel, disordered world, a world that's in rebellion, and confronts us in all of our ugliness and all of our messiness uh, with a solution that's up to the task. Uh, and you, you give us all the instruction we need, and not only to, to cope with this world in a way that the world looks for, but a way that is significantly more transcendent and more profound. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be those who do give thanks to you 
in the midst of a broken and fallen and hard world because we have this transcendent perspective that's come to us from your word. And I pray, Lord, just for our own hearts that when when the the philosophical temptations arise asking, has God really said that we would keep coming to back to what you have really said and leave whatever paradox might be there, but stick to those things you have communicated and be able, Lord, to be those who are the tough-minded, morally sinewy type of people that the gospel makes communities of people who are just being transformed by a transcendent vision of you who are able to rise above these types of things and just seek your glory and the fulfillment, the consummation of your mission, even when it comes at great cost and with great difficulty, because we have a vision of what is to come, of the supremely worthy Christ enthroned receiving praise from those you've redeemed from all people, tribes, and nations. I pray, Lord, that that would be a vision, a truth that drives and motivates and propels us uh, even through difficult times and as people who are overflowing with gratitude. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.